Well, last hour, we completed the applicational stage, and the last stage of the exegetical process is what we call correlation, and there's not a lot that we'll talk about here. It's pretty quick. It's just kind of a last verification aspect, if you will. So, we'll spend a few minutes talking about correlation, and what is it, first of all? Correlating is to set the passage in harmonious relation to the rest of Scripture. So it's just to make sure that all this time that you've spent in this passage understanding what the author is intending, that you are, in fact, reflecting not only what the author intended, but what all of Scripture indicates. So if it's out of harmony with another passage or the rest of Scripture, then you probably have gotten off track in your interpretive process. And let me illustrate it for you by using that same passage that we looked at in application back in James. I don't know if you picked it up. I didn't emphasize it because I knew I was going to come to this point here. Did you notice a little phrase... In verse 21, did you catch that last phrase? Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Catch that little phrase there? There's a similar phrase and a similar issue in the book of Hebrews. And depending on how you take little phrases like that and the word salvation in the book of Hebrews... There are two radically two different approaches to understanding both those books, both James and also the book of Hebrews. And it all hinges on one's understanding of that little phrase, save your souls, or even the word salvation by itself. And the problem is, and this is typical of most people, when they see the word salvation in the biblical text, The only thing they think about is salvation in the sense of trusting in Jesus Christ once for all, past event, that moment that I was convicted of sin and realized I need a Savior and I trusted Jesus as a Savior. You've been saved, and like Paul says in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved by faith. That past tense idea of salvation. And granted, most of the passages in Scripture deal with this past tense sense. And in most contexts, the word salvation is used in the sense of justification. And those passages primarily pertain to salvation from the penalty of sin. And once a person has experienced that, they will never have to stand. They are no longer condemned, but they have been justified. They've been set free, basically. They are eternally secure. Now, that's salvation in the sense of a past tense salvation. Now, if you do a word study on the word salvation, you're going to come up with four different ways that word is used, at least. You're going to come up in some context, I mentioned this earlier, when we were talking about every theological term has a sense that's not related to theology, but has an everyday sense. And I think I used Paul in Acts chapter 27, where he's talking about a salvation in terms of the shipwreck. And there's passages in the Old Testament that use the the uh, corresponding Hebrew word for salvation in the Old Testament. In some cases, salvation from an enemy or salvation from any type of danger. So you're going to find usages of that word salvation. That's the everyday sense. And when you come to the Bible now, it has also a theological sense in terms of this salvation that we also describe as justification. Where we're saved from that eternal danger, from hell, from separation from God into eternity. Now, most people think of this every time they see the word salvation. If you do a word study, you're going to find it in that literal, everyday sense. You're going to find it in this theological sense, in a past tense sense, 
And you're also going to find it in a future theological sense. There's another word the Bible uses for that. We describe that as glorification. And when it's used in that sense, we're talking about a salvation from even the very presence of sin. In other words, we'll be totally removed from our sin natures, we'll be totally removed from temptation, we'll be totally removed from the influence of the world, so all the enemies that we face now, the world, Satan, and the flesh, that's glorification, when we'll be saved in a total, complete sense. And if you want some verses along those lines... Somebody look up 1 Peter chapter 1. Somebody want to look that up real quick? Anyone? You got it, Josh? Somebody else look up 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Did you bring... You okay. Beverly, you want to do that one? 1 Corinthians 5, 5. And somebody who wants to do Philippians 2. You got it? Uh, 2, 12, and 13. And Jim, do you want to do First Peter one again? Chapter one, verse five, and chapter two, verse two. Let's look at the passages that pertain to this future sense. It doesn't use the word glorification. This is a word that Paul uses in some context, but that's the idea: salvation from the presence of sin. First Peter one four. You got that one, Josh? To an inheritance and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven. Reserved in heaven. If you read the context, he's talking about salvation there. Read verse 5 as well. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, that's the one I want wanted Jim to read. Um, yeah, verse 4, kept. In other words, it's reserved. It's That's this, uh, we're talking about this future sense. I uh, got verse 9 as well there, Josh. Yeah. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The end of your faith. In other words, this is the end product, salvation of your souls. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Beverly. Notice, this is the guy, was it Jim that was referring to uh, earlier? He's in an incestuous relationship with probably his mother. Paul is reprimanding not only that situation, but the church for allowing it to go on. And notice what he says in verse 5, referring to this guy that is totally carnal, you might say. What does he say about him? Deliver such a one to Satan. Deliver such a one to Satan, not for eternity, because of what? For destruction of the flesh. Of the flesh. And then the last phrase there. That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That his spirit may be saved. Future tense. He's a believer. He's got salvation in the past tense. He's not living like it. In fact, there's no evidence of salvation there in terms of outward appearance. But Paul is referring to a future salvation. So if you have a salvation in this past tense sense, and if you have a salvation that is yet future, and by the way, there's other verses that refer to that future salvation, then what do you expect? Present. A present tense sense. Another word that the Bible uses is in a sanctifying sense. Salvation in a sanctifying sense or salvation. And there's several verses that are used in that way. The Philippians 2, 12 and 13 Therefore, my dear prince, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And what's... For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. Okay, are we to work out our salvation in terms of the past tense? Sense? No. It's apart from works. Through faith, faith alone, Christ alone, apart from works. Yet Philippians says, work out your salvation, work it out. But he also adds, it's God that is working within us. That's a salvation in the present tense sense. That's a salvation from the very power of sin on an ongoing day-by-day basis. 
Most of the passages in the book of Hebrews and that passage in James, they're dealing with believers, but they're dealing with salvation in the ongoing present tense sense. So let's say you had exegeted that uh, James passage, that James chapter 1 passage, and you come across that little phrase, and you don't do a word study, and you're thinking in terms of only that past tense sense, you might come to the theological conclusion that he's dealing with an unbeliever here. And you interpret the whole passage from that perspective, and you have a distorted view. And that's the case. There are two approaches to the book of Hebrews. One assumes that some of the warning passages are addressed to a mixed group. And usually the warning passages apply primarily to the unbelievers in that mixed group of believers and unbelievers that the writer of Hebrews is addressing. Personally, I take the view that he's dealing with believers only throughout the book of Hebrews. And the warning passages pertain to believers, not unbelievers. And in that context, sometimes the writer of Hebrews will use the word salvation like it's used in First Peter there, in that sense of present tense salvation. In other words, the ongoing aspect. Because everything in the book, and like James as well, he addresses them as brethren over and over and over in the book of James. He's writing to believers, not a mixed group, and so also the writer of Hebrews. So, the point I'm making here is what correlation forces you to do is to take a look, and, and a simple word study on just the word salvation will bring this out. And maybe in your initial study of that passage you came to the conclusion that he's dealing with unbelievers in that passage, and or maybe the Philippians passage where it talks about working out your salvation, that one, that almost raises red flags because you know that salvation is by faith and faith alone, apart from works. So there's something here that I'm not understanding, and the correlation process, as you compare other passages, will awaken you to the idea that I'm on the wrong track here. That's what correlation is supposed to do. You got it? And you would just about need to do a word study. In this case. I mean, um, I mean, if it was a specific word that you were concerned about. Right, in this case. Yeah. 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 But it could appear in other forms as well, not, not just in terms of one specific word. But the idea here is here you have something that just doesn't fit the general theme of the rest of Scripture. And in the example I'm using, the idea of salvation by faith and faith alone, as opposed to entering into adding or adding works to the idea of salvation. And see that James passage, be a doer of the word, and even later on, it's going to be emphasized when he talks about faith, apart from works, is dead. You know, they're we have another. We have some more issues there as well. So how, how do you harmonize that passage, justification by works that he uses, James in chapter 2, with justification by faith that Paul presents in the book of Romans and Galatians and other places? Well, what does correlation do? It encourages you to see Scripture as a whole. In other words... Don't take passages in isolation. We're applying the context principle, but we're looking at it broader, the context principle in in terms of the whole Word of God. It's a check. It's a verification process. And another principle we apply here is we see inspiration and we see inerrancy, so... Because of that starting point, we harmonize. We don't see passages in conflict with other passages or passages that uh, are teaching doctrine contrary to what the rest of Scripture seems to indicate. See Scripture as a whole. Secondly, it encourages us to develop a biblical theology. Remember the Dennis the Menace cartoon I showed you? Everybody has a theology, even Dennis the Menace. Correlation will help you to develop a biblical theology. So everybody has a theology. It 
It's just that not everybody has a biblical theology. In fact, most people have a non-biblical theology. We want to have a theology that is consistent with all of Scripture. Correlation also helps you to develop a biblical worldview, seeing everything from the biblical perspective. Now, this takes it one step further in terms of kind of a broader perspective on all things. Develop a biblical worldview. Analyzing and evaluating and viewing all things from that broad picture of all of Scripture. Fourthly, correlation will help you to see Christ in all of the Scriptures. That was that last principle. Remember the Christological principle that Jesus introduces us to in Luke 24? That's what correlation will do for you. That's correlation. And in fact, that's the exegetical process. So just quickly, we've gone through observation, taking notice with perception. And we also mentioned that uh, you might go back and forth through, you might intertwine all of these stages. We've separated them out to understand them individually, but in actual practice, you may make some initial observations. And then you jump to interpretation. You begin interpreting, and then you might jump back and make more observations and then refine your conclusions or add to them, all the while seeking the author's willed meaning. And while you're in the whole process here of observation and interpretation, you might be struck or you might be convicted. The Holy Spirit may bring to your your thinking, oh, this is something I need to look at in terms of application. I need to obey this passage, not just understand it. So these things may just come about in somewhat of a random arrangement here, but we've separated them so you can understand them. And all the while, you may even early on observe, well, this doesn't seem to jive with other passages that I'm very familiar with. In other words... What's this salvation here? So now you go back and make more observations on that little phrase, salvation of the soul. In fact, that whole phrase, together, is an interesting concept that James and the writer of Hebrews utilize, primarily. I don't think Paul uses that little word, but it has its own concept. So you might, you're in that passage and that strikes you. So you're already starting the correlation process as you do the interpretive process. See what I'm saying? So you don't strictly do these in this order and and then complete them. In other words, all of the observations, I'm done. All of my conclusions in interpretation, I'm done. Now I go into the applicational stage, and once I do that, I'm done. And then I go to the correlation stage, and now I've completed everything. They all kind of work together in actual practice. So after you do the application, then we have correlation. Where does it fit with the rest of Scripture? So I've given you toolbox of exegetical tools. And they include primarily grammatical, grammar. Remember, we're utilizing the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. So grammatical, historical, or history, We've given you tools of culture, and you could add to the list a major tool of context, whole toolbox of exegetical tools. You utilize them as it's appropriate. You don't necessarily utilize them all in every case, at every circumstance, under every circumstance, but you utilize them as you need. Uh, the grammatical, you use almost every passage. In some passages, uh, history and culture will be not as significant as in others. You'll always use context and some of the other tools you'll utilize as well. So that's the exegetical process. Conclude with a little cartoon here. I'll let you read the cartoon. Ten years from now, I'll visit your... Make a church, and as you're up there preaching, I'll be sitting back there. Your wife. That was some sermon, honey. The man across the aisle from me was in tears. 
That was my old hermeneutics teacher. <laughs> so I'm asking you, don't make me cry when I visit your mega church. Any questions? That's the process. Next week, we'll go back to the hermeneutical portion and we'll complete the course looking at final issues of hermeneutics. But before we do that, in that packet that I handed out to you, there's also a sheet that has a title resource library there. Got that sheet? In the seminary curriculum, this is one of the first courses that is on the schedule for usually first-year students. And this is designed to kind of take not only the work that you'll do in this class, but even extend it beyond. But it's also helpful just for anyone that is interested in laying a foundation for themselves in terms of knowledge and understanding so that they can better minister to others. So these are just some suggestions in terms of building a resource library that I hope are helpful to all of you. Number one there, or Roman number one, the mental resource. While you are doing all this work in exegesis, you are renewing your mind. You're building a library in your head. That is a huge resource. And in all of us, our memories fade. (laughs) And depending on your stage in life, sometimes more rapidly than in other stages. But even the youngest and sharpest among us will not retain everything that you absorb in your exegetical process. Now, you'll be amazed when you have the occasion to share something, how the Holy Spirit will bring back to memory some of those things that you studied in the exegetical process. And others will sometimes kind of fade and quickly recede in your memory. So the memory is a great resource, but we are constantly adding to that memory, but we're also constantly somewhat losing that memory. Over time, we lose more, obviously. But we can't overemphasize what God is doing in terms of building and renewing my mind through the process that we've talked about. Observation, interpretation, application, and correlation. So that's the emphasis of this course. But as you continue to do this, and you want to do this, some of you, week after week, particularly the seminary students, are training to either be pastors or Bible teachers or in some way utilizing Scripture in their ministry. You want to develop a filing system of some sort. And as you exegete through a book, you want to preserve all of that work in at least a file pertaining to that book. But as you listen to sermons or as you read books or you read commentaries and you take notes in different areas... They're not always in the same place, so you want to have a filing system where you can file things away in reference to every book of the Bible. Now, for some people, it would be adequate just to have maybe a few manila folders that are dedicated to biblical books where you can put sermon notes or you can put other notes that you've taken or illustrations of certain passages and that sort of thing. To start off, you want to have at least an Old Testament and a New Testament so that you can put all the stuff in one or the other. Or it's even better, maybe starting out in the Old Testament, everything pertaining to the Pentateuch, everything pertaining to historical books, everything pertaining to wisdom literature, everything pertaining to the prophets. And if you want to break down the New Testament, uh, the Gospels, file folder with just the Gospels. Maybe one with the book of Acts. Maybe one with Paul's writings. Maybe one with general epistles. Then you have one with the book of Revelation. Early on, I just started a file. I said, well, I'm just going to have one for every book of the Bible. And to date, I've got lots of stuff in every one of those folders. Every single one of them. 
things that I've collected over the years. So that now, when I'm putting together work and I'm doing things, I can go back and look in those in those folders, retrieve even illustrations that are useful in a particular passage that I might be teaching. Or if I've got a word study that I did, perhaps in uh, the writings of Paul, the same word occurs in the book of Hebrews, so I'll go pull that one out. But it's a system where you can retrieve things, because our memory, I'm not going to retain all that. So I'm going to keep all of that on file. The books that I've exegeted, I put in a uh, binder, because I have so many notes. And some books, like the book of Genesis, I have two thick binders full of notes. And all of those are just my exegetical notes and the things that I've collected that go along with those notes. So that's what I mean by a filing system. Now, you can do the same thing with in the filing system related to topics. If you do a series or your pastor is doing the attributes of God or the perfections of God or some area like that, you can have a file for these different topics. And I've got some of those as well. In fact, I have a whole stack of different topics. This is just to be able to retrieve information later on, because you'll forget. And this will help you, oh, okay, there was something in First Peter that I studied ten years ago. You find the passage, you go in there, and if you have it organized by chapters, you can retrieve the information. So I've done that over the years. So I have two two file cabinets full of notes. If you have a whole course, you might put all of your notes that you took for that course, like this one, in a binder, and that's part of your filing system. Make sense? And you want to build a library. This is something that I built very early because I knew there would be books that I would use down the road. Nowadays, most of you younger guys would want to probably build an electronic library back in the Stone Age when I grew up. Electronic books were not available. This is last century. But everything is going digital now, and things are more readily available even on the Internet. So you can build some sort of a library of e-books or resources that you can access e-books. And also with a lot of electronics, it becomes obsolete with the media. Yeah, so you have to be careful. Right. Good point. Yeah, and who knows what the future may may hold. You may constantly have to update that, yeah. Whereas books are there and unless they get destroyed or something. Good point. In terms of books, I've got a list of some of the basic reference works there. A good one to start with, particularly those that are going in the direction of Bible teachers, pastors, church leaders... This one is outdated, but I think they have updated ones. This one's at least, I think, 25, maybe 30 years old. Uh, Cyril Barber's The Minister's Library. What it has is, it basically has a description of things that are useful to pastors and Bible teachers. And it'll have different categories, and it'll give you, it'll give you categories of different books. It'll, give you different reference books. It'll give you a whole section on commentaries, Old Testament commentaries, New Testament commentaries, on all of the individual books. And it'll give you a little blurb on each book. And it tells you, uh, let's say, commentaries on the book of Revelation, let's say. And here's a book by Hendrickson. And and it'll tell you uh, Hendrickson's an amillennialist and everything's oriented in the from the amillennial perspective. And it'll, it'll also give you some evaluation, you know, somewhat detailed or it might say light on certain thing. Just a little paragraph giving you an evaluation. It gives you a good idea what the book is all about. So that when you're building a library, you can go to it and look at it, see what they say about it. And once you read a little blurb, you might say, oh, that's that's not the right commentary that I need. I need a commentary. And you can go down the list and find one that is appropriate for for what you are doing. So it'll go, it has a, the, a section on theology, so books on theology. Pretty much a complete minister's library, as it notes there, with little blurbs on each of the books that it lists. 
And it's a whole volume of, I don't remember, 400 pages. So you have lots of books. I'm not even sure this one's still in print, but there's equivalents out there. And I'm sure there's stuff on the, the web as well. So in terms of reference works, every one of you should have at least a good Bible dictionary. And those of you that are going to be pastor, teachers, I would recommend even Merle Tenney's. It's a little old now, but the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible, five volumes. Unger's Bible Dictionary has been a standard in the past. There's several others, and there's a lot of newer ones out today. I can't remember when I put this together, but it's been over 10 years since I put this sheet together. So some of these are outdated. You need a good concordance. Most of you have either Young's or Strong's. A note there, the Englishman's Hebrew called the Concordance of the Old Testament and the corresponding Englishman's Greek Concordance. should have a Bible atlas to help you understand geographical issues and locations. Those of you that are in the original languages probably already have Bauer, Art and Gingrich, Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, corresponding Hebrew lexicon, BDB, it's referred to, Brown, Driver, Briggs. It's good to have introductions and or surveys. I referred to Jensen's survey of the Old Testament and the corresponding Jensen's survey of the New Testament. There's others like Guthrie, there's Archer's survey of the Old Testament. And then commentaries, Your probably your starting point might be the Bible Knowledge Commentary. There are two volumes on it. One that deals with all of the books of the Old Testament, and the other one that deals with all the books of the New Testament. The Wycliffe Bible Commentary is an older one that has been very useful for people as well. Those are your basic tools. And in terms of the commentaries, if you're going through a particular book, it would be good to get a commentary on that particular book or as many as you might want to get. Questions on that? So building a resource library is useful for a lifetime. Straightforward. The last sheet, exegetical procedure at the top there, see that? I've tried to put together on one sheet... A summary of everything that we've done. This can serve as a quick review, if you will, of the main things that we've touched on. And like I said, again, this breaks it down. And in actual practice, you'll go back and forth, observation, interpretation, etc. But it's set forth primarily after the format of the course here. Now, the preliminary exegetical portion there, Roman numeral 1, you'll usually do that at the beginning of your exegetical process if you're dealing with going through an entire book. But it's useful also if you're just dealing with a, a single passage, it's good to do a little of that just to know a little bit of the context of where that particular passage fits in. So we talked a lot about preliminary exegesis, doing a book study. And once you do a book study, you don't have to go back and do it again. Every time you're in a passage there, you, you do it for the whole book, obviously. And there are two stages, as you can see there, an overview of the entire book. And this you can do without any outside resource. You Remember, we encourage you just to read the book as many times as you need to, looking for those particular things in the book. In other words, what's the main thing this book is dealing with, the big idea of the book, trying to break down the major divisions of the book, why did the writer write this book, all those issues, try to observe them. And you might go outside of the book, or also in the book, but most of your historical background will come out of the books that I recommended at that stage. At that time, I recommended uh, it'd be good to even do this for every book of the Bible to give you an overall picture of of Scripture as a whole. It's a book study. And making preliminary observations on the particular paragraph that you're dealing with, dealing with the text, 
For the Greek students, you might even translate the paragraph. Make sure you understand the context of the paragraph you're dealing with. Any other initial observations? Remember all that? All this coming back? And then Roman numeral 2, the observation and the interpretation phase of the passage. Those naturally somewhat go together. So you're making exegetical observations on the paragraph, observing terms, grammatical structure, purpose, literary genre. Any other observations on that passage? And now you're making decisions, exegetical decisions, slash interpretations. And the way you come to conclusions are the list that I give you. If you have some textual issues in there, you need to look at them come to some conclusions there. I put grammatical analysis before lexical analysis or word studies. That's basically where I start. I'll start by diagramming a passage or the passage. And then from that, then I will decide which words I want to do a word study on because it'll give me the priorities. So I'll do that grammatical analysis. I'll diagram it. If you choose to do a mechanical layout, that would be acceptable. And any final grammatical decisions that you need to make for each sentence in that paragraph. And then the word that I've chosen, I'll do a word study. And those of you that turned in the assignments, you just completed your word study. And you'll do that pretty commonly as you continue studying the word. Analyzing literary structure of the paragraph with its context and literary structure around that paragraph, literary genre, historical cultural studies, other issues. Talked about those last week. The synthesis part of your work will include finalized translation for Greek students or Hebrew students. Validate your exegesis by consulting commentaries. Here's the stage of commentaries. Or if you have access to others that have studied the same passage, what work have they done? Here's your exegetical outline. This is your refined, your final exegetical outline. You put everything together. You've kind of broken everything down to understand the pieces or the parts, but the synthesize or the summarization phase towards the end here, now you're putting it all back together now that you are beginning to see how it all fits together. That's your exegetical outline. What's the main idea of this passage or this paragraph? And you remember I mentioned the main idea of that paragraph should be a summary of your exegetical outline. And conversely, the exegetical outline should be a detailed expansion of the main idea. And the last thing here, write an exegetical paper or in some way formulate a set of notes that records the results of all of your exegesis. And Roman numeral number three, everything we talked about today. Application and correlation. Find life-changing applications from the paragraph and make sure that you correlate the passage such that it is in harmony with all the rest of Scripture. Does that put it all together for you? So you have the whole course on one little sheet there. Well, we've got a little bit of time. In the time that remains, let's take a look at another passage and kind kind of uh, very quickly, and we won't go through every step, but let's take a look at another passage and go through the process just to kind of practice all that we've talked about to this point. And let's do the book of Hebrews. We've already somewhat looked at this. I gave you this as an example. Remember we looked at the first two verses in the book of Hebrews? Let's take another look at them. And let's say that we've already done our book study on the book of Hebrews. And we've come up with some divisions in the book. And personally, I see two major divisions of the book. So I've observed that division number one runs from chapter 1-1, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 18. 
And everything in those chapters relate to Jesus Christ, and the writer is showing the readers that Jesus Christ is superior in every way to everything in the Old Testament. So I call that first division the superiority of Christ, so that you have the context. And then secondly, the second major division of the book is the response of faith. And what the writer seems to be doing is he is giving a doctrinal foundation of the superiority of Christ over all Old Testament things. The Old Covenant, Old Testament teaching, Old Testament characters... There's a whole list of things that he does that he treats individually. Superiority of Christ. And based on that doctrinal foundation of the superiority of Christ, now he's calling upon the Hebrews to respond by trusting that Christ will work in their lives and trust in him. Now, in the background, in the book study, I also found that this was written to... First century Jewish believers, that's why it's called Hebrews, Jewish believers. And I've already mentioned that there's two views. Some believe that it's written to a community of Jews that is mixed with some believers and some unbelievers, but they're all Jewish. So the reason he's talking about the superiority of Christ in the background, they are under persecution This was written shortly before 70 A.D. when the Jews particularly were being persecuted and eventually expelled from the land of Palestine in 70 A.D. So they were suffering. So it was easier to go back to the old Judaism. They were suffering from family as well, but they they were under persecution for their faith. So he's laying out, you can't go back. Don't go back because it's inferior. Everything in Christ is superior and they need to respond by trusting that Christ can work in them. That's the whole thrust of the whole book. So basically you might summarize the whole book of Hebrews as Christ is superior to all things in the Old Testament, therefore live by faith in Christ. That would be a statement I would make for the whole book. That's the context of the whole book. And a little bit of the background. So that's where the first two verses here fit in. And this is the way he starts out this whole thing. So he begins with a contrast of the Old Testament right off the bat. So now we're going to look at this first paragraph that runs through verse 4. And what's the first thing that we want to do in looking at this paragraph? I'll ask you. First thing I do is what? Well, yeah, I'll read it, but... <laughs> Hebrews 1, 4. First paragraph. Chapter 1. But the paragraph runs from verse 1 to verse 4, but what's the first thing you do with that paragraph? Yes, exactly. Break it down in terms of sentences. And if you're working in the English, then that's the first two verses. At least New American Standard. I can't remember how some of the other versions treat it, but... One sentence. So let's work our way through that one sentence, first of all, and then after we've completed that, then later on we would go look for the next sentence. And by the way, in the Greek text, all four verses is one sentence. But we're using the English text, so we'll just look at the first two verses there. What's the next thing that we want to do after we've isolated, the first sentence begins in verse 1, ends in verse 2. Now what? Clauses. Okay, any clauses? And probably the easiest way to do it is just work through the sentence clause by clause. So let's try to identify the first clause. And so we just start reading. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, comma, does that look like a clause there? Okay, that looks like a clause. Is it independent or dependent? It's dependent. Yeah, the after is your 
subordinating conjunction. Okay, so we keep reading verse 2. In these last days has spoken to us in his son, comma. And that seems to be a clause, doesn't it? Because we, the next thing we have here is whom, he, etc. Okay, what is that? Independent. Independent. Okay. And let's keep reading. So we've identified a dependent clause, and we've identified perhaps a independent clause, or an independent clause. Whom he appointed heir of all things, comma, does that seem to be a good stopping point? Okay, so we have another clause. What kind of clause is that one? That's a dependent clause. The whom makes it a relative clause. And then after the comma, through whom also he made the world, period. What's that? It's another clause. Independent? Through whom? I would say that's dependent. So we have a dependent clause followed by an independent clause followed by two dependent clauses. So let's get at first to start with the independent clause because that's the heart and essence of this sentence. We've identified it in these last days has spoken to us in his son and probably God, do you notice God up there, comma, probably goes with the independent clause. So he starts an independent clause, interrupts it with a dependent clause, and then he goes back to the independent clause. You follow there? Okay. So the independent clause is God in these last days has spoken to us in his son. That's the heart, that's the essence of this long, complicated sentence. Following? What's the next thing we do? And by the way, if we were diagramming it... We would keep going this far, and then we would start our diagramming. Okay, so what's the next thing we do? We've identified the clauses. Okay, everything's related, but what's the next thing? What was number three on our basic analysis? No, no, not yet. Not yet. This is basic. What do you do with the independent clause? First thing? Subject and verbs. Subject and verbs. What's the subject of the independent clause? God. Verb? Spoken. Or has spoken. Everything in this sentence, and probably everything in this paragraph, pertains to God has spoken. Just going to tell us something about God speaking. So, here's where I start diagramming, and I would begin, subject, God, has spoken. Okay, everything relates to that? And if we're diagramming, I might just follow through on that. So, we have the subject. Uh, what is in these last days? It's a little phrase there. Preposition. It's a prepositional phrase. Probably, yeah. In these last days, so in is a preposition. What's the main element of the, what's the main object of the preposition? Days. And then these just modify the days. Figure it out. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Why? Because they precede what you're modifying. Okay. That might be a good reason. Okay, in these last days. Okay, let's keep working. In these last days, we have the verb. God has spoken. This gives us the time frame in these last days. And by the way, one of the things that kind of sticks out right away, last days, I'm going to want to do some work on that last days thing. What is he talking about? We're 2,000 years later. What happened? Is the writer of Hebrews wrong? He make a mistake? Okay, in these last days, has spoken, and now what do we have? It's acting a little bit like a direct object, but actually it's a prepositional phrase, to us. No, it wouldn't be a clause, because it doesn't have a verb, but it's something like this, to us, 
It's acting a little bit like an indirect object, actually. To us, and then what's the other little phrase there? In his son has spoken in his son. There's your independent clause. See how easy that was? Pretty easy. And now everything else is just going to tell me something about God speaking. But I'm, I'm beginning to identify some things. I'm going to want to figure out what does he mean by these last days here, so I might even put a note somewhere, go back and study these last days. But it's already popping up as I'm diagramming. And what else is going to stick out here is, as I continue here, we're going to find out some other things that we're going to want to investigate here. So let's go back and let's take a look at the first dependent clause which we said was basically all of verse 1 except for God, because that's part of the independent clause. He just kind of interrupts the subject there with a comma. After he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. That's a dependent clause. So all of that goes together. But it's telling us something about the speaking, and it's also introducing a time frame. And it's a dependent clause, so as spoken, actually it goes way over here. I'm going to do this. And this is not uncommon, that's why I use a scratch piece of paper. So I have after, what's the subject of this subordinate clause? He, after he, and verb, spoke. By the way, everything relating to this Subordinate clause is related to, again, he's speaking. So we have kind of, uh, we're beginning to see a lot of emphasis on him speaking because even the first subordinate clause is dealing with him speaking. After he spoke, and the rest just tells us about speaking. Spoke long ago, close together, telling us when, and tells us who he spoke to. To the fathers. Where else? About you and how. In, yeah, how much and how in many, in portions, and there's many of them, and in what? Ways. This is how many and in many places. See how easy this is? I'm just following the text here. So this is your first dependent clause. So I have one, one here, and one, one, a. That's all of verse one. Got it? Now we just go dependent clause by dependent clause. So we've got in these last days has spoken to us in his son. Now we have whom he appointed. And who does the whom refer to? In other words, who does the whom refer to? Okay, we've got the faith. Okay, do we put it over here? Who's under son? Or do we put it under here? Over there. Okay, we're making a decision. This is Jim favors here, and the rest of you favor here, so does the majority rule? Well, because it's how he appointed heir. Okay. The he refers to God, but the whom refers to whom appointed him. Oh, he is. Oh, it is. Oh, Jim is. Oh, Jim is right. Okay, majority doesn't rule. Yeah, okay. No, Jim is right. Minority rules. (laughs) Good. All right. See what the the diagramming is forcing you to, okay, how do I, you know, where do I put these? Okay. Whom he... And what's the verb here? Whom he pointed. See how the grammar forced us to make a decision there. We had to figure out who, who does it, how does it relate. And he's telling us something about the sun. And what I started to tell you before, almost the rest of the passage is all going to be pointed, or is going to deal with the sun. And if you read uh, 3 and 4 in the Greek text, it's just, we just have more of this. It's relating to the sun. Well, see, that's what I found when I was doing the homework for the uh, diagram, because 
first I did, I put this, whatever it was, over here. And then I went back and I was reading it some more. Yes, yeah. Like, no, maybe it, I think it goes over right. here. Right. And you're, you're, wor- you're working yeah. through the process. So diagramming forces you to think through and make these decisions, change your mind, rearrange it. And if you have a whiteboard at home, you can just do it by erasing. Uh, I do it on a scratch sheet of paper, and sometimes they'll just crumble that piece and start over. Exactly. Got it? Also, I don't know exactly, and maybe, like, first three is almost, like, part of it. First part is almost like a parenthesis. In what version you use? The New American Standard. New American Standard. And he is the radiance of the glory. Yeah. Exact representation of his nature. Yeah, but it is structured such that it continues modifying the sun. So down here we would have one, three, two, four, or it might be broken down even more than that. But not in the English. So we're, we're gonna we're gonna omit that for now. We're just gonna look at the English text here. So whom he acquainted, and now we have a direct object, heir. Whom he appointed heir, and we have a prepositional phrase. What does that modify? Okay. All things. And that's it. And through whom also, I'm going to do something like this. Through whom, what do we have here? Do we have subject there? Ben Claus, we have subject. He also made what? World. World. Another. Okay, so that is, okay, this is 1, 1, and this is 1, 2, that's all of this, and all of that. Correct? There it is. See how easy that was? It is. I mean, it, I mean, it really is when you start doing it. Once you just start working yeah. your way through it. Yeah. But, it, but what's amazing to me is how, how clear it makes the passage then. Yeah. That's the reason you do it. Yeah, exactly. So now, in your outline, your outline has to reflect, in a huge way, this whole speaking idea, and everything else is pertaining to that. And God is the subject, so we're talking about God's revelation, or God's revealing, or God's speaking, and everything else, you know, he spoke in the past, in some ways, and now he's speaking in the Son, and in these last days, he's speaking in the sun. So a major emphasis is the sun, and everything else is just telling us something about who the sun is. And I, I noticed that uh, as you go through this this book, that understanding that part right there to actually seeing God speaking mm-hmm. because He does it throughout the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What Jim is re- referring to is when the writer makes a quotation from the Old Testament. He doesn't say Isaiah. He says the Holy Spirit or God, you know. Besides God speaking after he spoke in the Old Testament. You got that? And now that I've got that, the outline is just going to come out from that. I'm going to have two emphases in that first sentence. One, an emphasis on the speaking part, and a second emphasis because of the the number of other clauses. And like I said, you're going to have other things that are related here that are going to be related to the sun. So I'm going to break that down probably into two parts. Something referring to the speaking and something that's going to expand who Christ is. And now I have the essence of what that writer's trying to communicate. And in terms of word studies, uh, this is not exactly a word study, but I might begin to probe these last things. Here's a, a word that might warrant maybe at least a casual look, if not a complete word study. Air. Air of all things. So everything's going to end, or this revelation in Christ, everything's going to end in him because he's appointed heir of all things. And everything begins with him. So we have two ideas, so under the sun I'm going to have these two ideas. Everything ending in the sun and then everything beginning in the sun and then we'll probably have more as you get into verses 3 and 4. So, in 20 minutes we've almost exegeted this whole passage. All we have to do is just do the detailed study. At least analyze the grammar. 
and that's the huge part. I'm going to have to do a, an awful lot of rework. I'm sorry, I'm done with that. Josh, do you want close for us? Sure.